Regenerative Medicine Today. I'm Leah Kaufman. And I'm John Murphy. Before we begin, I'd like to invite our listeners to tell us more about their interests. So that we can bring you the interviews and information you'd like to hear, we hope you'll take a few minutes to complete the listener survey on our website at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. All of the survey respondents will be entered into a drawing for a McGowan Institute police vest. And now, on to today's podcast. You'll hear from Dr. Harvey Borovetz, a deputy director at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, who is in charge of artificial organs and medical devices, and chair of the bioengineering department at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Borovetz, a bioengineer himself, helped to found the University of Pittsburgh's artificial heart program 20 years ago. He'll tell us about those pioneering days and the current state of the field, which is working on coin-sized devices to help sustain the youngest and tiniest heart failure patients. Let's hear Leah's conversation with Dr. Borovitz now. Well, Dr. Borovitz is here today with us to discuss his long experience developing um, devices that take over some of the function of the heart. Welcome. Thank you. Tell me about your involvement in this field. How long have you been developing substitutes for the heart's function? So it, it really began um, in the mid-1970s. Uh, for my PhD thesis, I had worked to develop an um, extracorporeal membrane oxygenator for children as uh, my PhD research. And through my uh, thesis advisor, Professor Tin Can Hung, um, I was introduced to a young heart surgeon whose name uh, is Robert Hardesty. Dr. Hardesty had just returned from several surgical fellowships to countries that don't exist anymore, actually. Well, one was the Soviet Union, which I guess has a different title, and the other country, interestingly enough, was Iran. And he had just returned from these surgical fellowships and um, was introduced to myself and Dr. Hung, and was interested in doing research in this area. So I finished my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, was hired by Dr. Bonson and Dr. Hardesty in the Department of Surgery in 1976. And literally within months after I was hired, uh, the first case for the use of an oxygenator to support a child in heart failure came, of, came available. And so the first use of these types of devices in Pittsburgh was 1976. And interestingly enough, that program using oxygenation um, or devices that can both oxygenate and be part of a blood pumping apparatus, it's called ECMO, the acronym, um, has been in use at, this ho at Children's Hospital now for decades. And it's really a wonderfully successful program. And um, so, that program took off, and the next, you know, big event that spurred everything was in 1980, 1981, when Dr. Bonson and, and Dr. Detry recruited Tom Starzl to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and Dr. Starzl began a transplant program. The successes are, uh, you know, five, five podcasts, but Within five years after Dr. Starzl had arrived here, uh, Dr. Griffith and Dr. Hardesty, and so now I introduce Dr. Bartley Griffith, who um, was a fellow when I first began here in 1976, completed his surgical 
training in this uh, in 1979 and did a heart surgery fellowship in 1980, I think. In any event, he joined Dr. Hardesty uh, in the Department of Surgery working under Dr. Bonson. And when Dr. Starzl arrived, um, Dr. Griffiths wanted to also uh, start up again the heart transplant program. Dr. Bonson had performed a heart transplant here in Pittsburgh in 1968. And after that one experience, the, the heart transplant program lay dormant. When Dr. Starzl arrived um, with his immunosuppressive drugs, Dr. Griffith wanted to restart the heart transplant program, which did indeed happen. Within five years, the University of Pittsburgh was performing more heart transplants than any other center in the country. And in fact, at one point the number was 120 per year. So even 20 years ago, even 20 years ago, there was a shortage of donor organs for the numbers of patients that were on the waiting list here at the University of Pittsburgh. And so Dr. Griffith was aware of the use of the total artificial heart. In those days, um, the first use had been in a patient by the name of Barney Clark. Um, it was a very famous case, actually, at the University of Utah in 1982. And there were several other follow-up cases, not uh, for transplant, per se, but as a, a permanent substitution. So another name people might remember is William Schrader, who also received an artificial heart. You might remember Mr. Schrader um, received a phone call from President Reagan in those days, and uh, Mr. Schrader complained something about some bureaucratic uh, problem with his Social Security checks or something like that, and I remember and it's on the TV that uh, President Reagan said he would look into it. So, so the artificial heart had been used for a permanent substitute. Was it successful as a permanent substitute? Um, <clears throat> yes and no. It was certainly capable of pumping for long periods of time. But there were a number of complications that these patients suffered. And uh, many of those complications remain a challenge even today. One of the complications is uh, transient ischemic attacks and or strokes where you worry about uh, blood clots that ultimately can lodge in the vessels in the brain, or you worry about infection. And these are challenging problems even today. Uh, but it was Dr. Griffith's concept to use the artificial heart not for a permanent substitute, but as a bridge to support his patients until a heart transplant. Uh, could be found. And that is today, is that the most common use? That is still the most common use. Okay. So even though we haven't solved the problem with a shortage of donor organs, we can at least help patients survive the wait. We can help some patients. Okay. Um, and in general, depending on which epidemiologic study you believe, there are on the order 50,000 Americans annually who are in heart failure and for whom there's really no medical option and there's really only a transplant option or some sort of a replacement option. And as everyone knows, there's only about 22 or 2300 transplants performed annually, which really is a second order effect when you, if you believe the number is 50,000. Mm -hmm. So in the long run, the ultimate solution or therapy for, for heart failure 
will be something else besides transplant. And for decades now, engineers and clinicians uh, have worked together to try to develop mechanical replacement devices, artificial hearts, ventricular cyst devices, that ultimately could be used to support these tens of thousands of patients who are in heart failure. Permanently then? Permanently, ultimately. If you have an ultimately successful device, then it can be permanent. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some examples of these sorts of things, like the pacemaker, for example, that can, can uh, or any, any types of implants. Um, of course, this is a much more challenging circumstance here, but heart valve replacements that have decades of uh, use life, orthopedic implants, um, these sorts of things can, can function very well in many cases for decades. What were some of the major challenges initially in developing these devices? People, I think, weren't aware of the challenges uh, in the early stages. After all, if you view the heart as simply a mechanical pump, you, you evaluate um, the design of a pump. There are very specific engineering principles associated with that. Um, the biggest challenge, of course, is not how much power you need for this pump because it's only a few watts actually for, uh, for, for the heart to deliver blood around the circulation. The challenge is the fact that the fluid that you're pumping is called blood. And it's a remarkable fluid that has unique properties. And for most of us who are fortunately healthy, the blood circulates through our vessels for decades on end and we have no idea that it's even occurring. But when you take blood and expose it to artificial surfaces, which is the composition of these blood pumps, then there's many complications and sequences of biochemical and biophysical events which occur that really could not be foreseen by the early pioneers in this field and require expertise like exists at McGowan through Dr. Wagner and Dr. Wagner's team to try to uncover what is going on and once you understand what the problems are, try to develop uh, solutions to these problems. So that's one example of something that really wasn't foreseen when you were just thinking about the f designing a pump. So in addition to clots, which you've already mentioned as being a problem, what are, what are some other ways that blood is altered by its exposure to these artificial materials? So there's a, a number of sequence of events which occur when blood contacts an artificial surface. And the first thing is that a layer of protein is deposited on these artificial surfaces. Depending upon the ultimate configuration and conformation of these proteins, uh, then you can have platelets that adhere, and these platelets may or may not become activated. They can form clumps and clots, etc., uh, involve white cells and other f and cellular elements. It's very complicated, and it's a function um, there in, in, the, uh, in, in learning about this. There's something called the Virchow, V-I-R-C-H-O-W, Virchow's triad, that says that there are three components in trying to understand basic biocompatibility. And it has to do with the uh, physical, biophysical properties of the material itself. It has to do with the flow dynamics, and it has to do with the characteristics of the blood itself. And all of these factors, in many, many complicated ways, are interrelated in terms of ultimately producing a device that 
interfaces wonderfully with the blood, just like our natural vessels and surfaces do for hopefully many decades. Is there an effort to understand the, the physics and biochemistry of our own vessels, and is there an effort to mimic those with and artificial there's, there's devices? Been an, there's been an ongoing effort in understanding this for decades, and there are many textbooks that, um, and publications um, that describe the biophysics of our blood vessels. And a number of the researchers here at McGowan, at uh, the McGowan Institute, are, are recognized authorities at doing this. So Dr. David Vorp, for example, Dr. Michael Sachs. Uh, Dr. Vorp, for example, is using his knowledge of the biophysics and biochemistry and rheology of blood and blood vessels to design um, his own tissue-engineered blood vessel that may be a... a a whole new concept in terms of replacement of disease vessels in our bodies. So people have been investigating this discipline for years, and it is interdisciplinary. There is a lot of physics and engineering and analysis and mathematics that needs to be joined with the biology and the medicine um, to ultimately come up with an optimum replacement or therapy. I'm trying to imagine the experience of uh, a group of young pioneers in a new field holding a brand newly manufactured device in their hands, um, getting to know a patient in desperate need. Now, interestingly enough, you were there. Can you tell us a little bit about that first experience with an artificial heart? You know, I tell people that please don't ask me what I did yesterday because I can't possibly remember. But if you ask me anything about what happened 21 years ago on that first implant, there isn't one second of it that I can ever forget. Mm -hmm. And it was that profound an impact, I must tell you. And um, so when Dr. Griffiths decided that we were going to consider doing uh, artificial hearts for a bridge of transplant, and Dr. Bonson uh, approved this concept, and, and so Dr. Griffiths and Dr. Hardesty were all set to go. Um, what you did in those days is you flew to where the devices were being manufactured, which was Salt Lake City. So we flew to Salt Lake City, and we trained on this technology. We learned about it. We learned how it functioned. We learned how to operate it, all those sorts of things. And uh, again, it was an interdisciplinary team. I went as an engineer one of our uh, perfusion uh, folks from Presby, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center Presbyterian. Bill Rhodes joined us, Dr. Griffith, Dr. Hardesty were there. Of course, Dr. Trento, who was a surgical fellow in those days, um, were there. And we all flew to Utah to learn how to use this technology. And that involved, um, that involved implanting it in animals to try to understand how you do all these things. I was fascinated by the fact, and I'm participating in all these, and I have pictures of all this, of course, and I was fascinated by the fact that you would do this horrendous surgery, or at least, I mean, enormous case where you operate on this animal and anesthesia and take this artificial heart and put it in the animal. And literally, as soon as the animal woke up, it kind of jumped off the table, moseying on over to its stall and started eating its hay or whatever they were feeding it. I kind of thought, boy, I guess this is how it's going to work in the patients, you know. Just, well, of course, I quickly learned that there's an enormous difference between these healthy animals 
and the critically ill patients that we, uh, we would be facing. So we learned about the technology. We made several visits to Utah. And then the last weekend in October 1985, a, a patient um, became a candidate for that device. And Tom Gatish is the patient. And so <clears throat> we were confronted with the circumstance that we were going to do this implant in Mr. Gatish. And what a remarkable scene and story it was because and I remember going into the operating room, and the operating room was absolutely packed with people. I mean, it was standing room only. And in the midst of all this commotion, Dr. Griffith said, I only want to hear Harvey. And so here I am standing by this machine, dozens of people in this operating room, the first time we're ever trying to do this. And the whole thing kind of hinges on what I'm going to tell Dr. Griffith to do. And I'm appearing calm just as I am now. Always appear calm today. No problem. You can't imagine what my insides were like <laughs> <laughs> under those particular circumstances. Yeah. But fortunately, thanks to Dr. Griffith's guidance and help, we were able to put Mr. Gatish on the uh, artificial heart and it was front page news. In mm -hmm. those days, there was a Pittsburgh Press, and the front page, I have a slide of that, the front page headline of the Pittsburgh Press was actually the implant and the whole story about this. Mm -hmm. And it was remarkable, and, and I have many memories of every second of this. Um, and I, re I remember how this went on hours after hour after hour, and there were complications that Dr. Griffith had to deal with in the middle of the night, but of course he was always able to deal with it. And I might add that the, the team, um, the team of course included all the wonderful nursing staff who just worked 24-7, they never stopped working. Mm -hmm. um, there was myself, the lone engineer with Dr. Griffith, and there were two other young people in those days. One was Dr. Cormos, mm -hmm. who was a fellow from University of Toronto, and another was Dr. Larry Way, who was a surgical resident in Dr. Bonson's program, who happened to be doing his year in Dr. Bonson's laboratory uh, when we did the first artificial heart patient. So it was pretty much Dr. Griffith in charge and myself and Dr. Cormos and Dr. Way pretty much doing all the other supporting things that we needed to do uh, to try to get through this, this and other of these initial implants. So I just remember how hard, um, to this day I remember how hard the nurses were working. They never stopped and I, I collapsed into the chair outside of the patient's room watching the equipment and I literally just collapsed into the chair. I was so exhausted and these nurses just never stopped. Mm -hmm. And I remember that to this day actually. Mm -hmm. But I also remember um, the family. I remember Mrs. Gatish coming in to see uh, Mr. Gatish, I remember uh, Mr. Gatish's son, and I remember especially how Mr. Gatish responded when his daughter walked in. And I also remember that the, the day that Mr. Gatish was transplanted, um, the Steelers were playing the Cincinnati Bengals. And Mr. Gatish's son decided that they wanted to have a television in the room so that uh, Mr. Gatish could watch the football game. 
Of course, I'm not allowed to say anything. I'm just, you know, sitting outside working the equipment. But I was sure hoping that they would get that TV <laughs> so that I could actually watch a football game myself. Mm -hmm. But it was, it, was truly, it was truly remarkable. And that evening, uh, Mr. Gatish uh, uh, received a heart transplant, or within a few days he received a heart transplant. And he, and he lived for another nine years with his, with, his heart, with his heart transplant. And he was truly a spokesperson for this program. He, he spoke to other uh, patients. He, he was always, he and his family were always so grateful and generous with their time. It was really a terrific story. And, uh, and certainly one that I would never forget. Yeah. And so that's kind of how we started in, in 1985. And now we're 350 patients later and there have been a lot of lessons learned. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you how soon after that first experience with your first patient, Mr. Gatish, you were formulating the improvements that you might need to make moving forward. And, and I want to point out to listeners that when you're developing a new, say, surgical technique or a, let's say a plastic surgery technique, it might mean the difference of changing the way that you suture or changing the way that you make incisions. But when you're talking about a medical device like an artificial heart, it's not a matter of going back and doing it a little bit differently the next time. You're talking about years of development and proof of concept and then finding a device manufacturer to take on your vision and make it real. So, so this is all true. The first case was so terrific that uh, we thought we had perfection, of course. Um, and interestingly enough, three months later, we did the next case. And we had successes. There's no question we had successes. But we brought an engineering perspective to this, and so we, we were always concerned about the compatibility of the blood. And we began making measurements to assess the compatibility of the blood, um, bio, biological, biophysical, bioengineering type measurements. And we uncovered... Um, phenomenon that hadn't really been discovered before, uh, I, I think because previous groups had not really thought about doing these sorts of things. We, we were actually at a university where engineering and medicine were really linked, we're right across the street from each other, and so we had a unique opportunity to try to do these sorts of measurements. And so very early on we saw that there was going to be a problem in the long term with the biocompatibility. Dr. Griffith and Dr. Cormos and Dr. Way were also very concerned about the infection rate uh, of these patients on these devices. And so we were beginning to uncover the challenges we were going to face, mm -hmm. none of which we saw in the healthy animals, of course. Mm -hmm. And again, part of the learning curve that uh, it's not the same, it's not the same thing at all. So we were beginning to understand from these first 20 patients, we did uh, 21 patients, I believe, with the total artificial heart as a bridge to transplant we were beginning to identify what these problems really were, and that allowed us then to begin to identify how to solve them. So it was a continuing process, an evolving process. I mean, you really couldn't a priori know from a bench test or from an implant in a healthy animal what kinds of problems you would face. You really had to ultimately uh, see the response of patients to this type of technology to try to understand how to make it better. I know with early organ transplants, though Dr. Starzl's breakthrough um, anti-rejection therapies were not yet available, and 
patients weren't gaining a lot of extra time on this earth, they were still lining up in droves for the opportunity to get a replacement organ. Did you have trouble finding patients willing to have an artificial heart used on them? What, what I've always found remarkable is, is the uh, incredible um, grit, determination, and heroism of the patients and the families. I mean, they're, they're facing, so you have to understand that the patient himself or herself is critically ill. For them, they, they don't feel like you and I do. Um, at my age, you have a few aches and pains, but I get through it. For these folks, brushing their teeth is a major accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So you, you have to try to put yourself in a context of these folks and, and their loved ones who are watching uh, their husband or wife or son or daughter literally deteriorate in front of them. And, and for some patients, uh, many people, quite frankly, even 20 years ago, um, the opportunity to have a life and hopefully even a better life um, through this type of technology um, was enough of an incentive to agree to undergo this type of a highly uh, unproven, quite frankly, uh, technology, uh, but yet the alternative clearly was certain death almost for sure. And so many of these patients were willing to to try it. And, and so uh, for the most part, the patients have been true heroes. Uh, all the ones that will be at the gala uh, this coming October, heroes and their families are heroes because they they agreed to do things that I'm not sure I could have. Tell me a little bit more about the gala, if you can, this October 2006. What is being celebrated? But it is a, to commemorate the fact that we've been doing implants of these types of devices for 20 plus years, and and in, in to my way of thinking, the, the to true heroes in all this are the patients and their mm -hmm. families. So to me, it's honoring them. Now, speaking of improving it, tell me the sort of stark contrast between devices of 20 years ago and the ones that are being used today. The stark contrasts are that um, some of the devices of 20 years ago um, were as large as a, a, a saucer for a coffee cup. Mm -hmm. And the devices that are used today uh, here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center um, some of them are as small as a D-cell battery. Mm -hmm. And the principle of operations of these newer devices um, is different than the previous devices. The devices like the artificial heart and the first ventricular cyst devices that Dr. Griffith used years ago um, follow the same pumping principle as a natural heart, which is called the Starling principle, which basically says what flows into the heart is pumped out by the heart. Um, and as a result, you, you measure a pulse that represents the, the um, generation of a waveform by the heart as it contracts and propels the blood through the circulation. Well, uh, a company that we've had close associations with some 20 years ago had another idea for an artificial heart that's based on the Archimedes principle and basically is analogous to the, the uh, garden pump you have that basically is a spinning turbine that pumps the water that waters your lawn. So these folks who happen to be aerospace engineers thought, well, maybe we can apply this technology to blood mm -hmm. and pumping of blood. 
And so these folks actually developed the first spinning rotor artificial heart type device and um, applied it clinically, I think, the better part of 20 years ago. And a, a unique example uh, and a, a unique uh, advantage of that device is how much smaller it was to the device that needed a sack so that you fill the sack and empty the sack like the Starling principle. Here you just have spinning rotors. And lo and behold, these engineers uh, were able to design a device that, even though it spun many thousands of times per minute, nonetheless still did not cause undue damage to the blood cells. Mm -hmm. And that was the real breakthrough. And thus began the use of these so-called rotary blood pumps. There's something a little unsettling about rotary blood pumps. That is that. Well, can you can you guess what I'm getting? Oh, uh, I know exactly <laughs> what you're getting to. So if you turn up the RPMs high enough, so it's really spinning quickly, and you try to measure your pulse, in the limit you won't measure anything. You'll look for the pulse and you won't be able to find it. And you'll look at the patient and see the patient very well pink and perfused and happy and wonder how what is going on. So it, is, it has been some challenge to, to implement a device like this. And one of the questions people ask is, if you implant a pump like this in the long term, um, will there be any uh, deleterious uh, uh, effects in the end organs or tissues? Because after all, we're programmed to have a pump where you measure a pulse once a second or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the challenges with this new technology to, to address that question. But it's so exciting, this new technology, because if you have a pump the size of a D-cell battery as opposed to a saucer, then you don't have to exclude more than half of the population from the technology. And for the larger pumps, most women would not be candidates to receive oh, them. Right? Because they're just too big, these pumps are just too large. And certainly that's true for children. Mm -hmm. But now with these pumps the size of a D-cell battery, then really the entire population is uh, capable of having them implanted in almost all instances. And you really don't have to exclude too many people um, as you had to for some of these other pumps, those large first-generation pumps. And speaking of children, I understand um, not long ago that the McGowan Institute, I think, was awarded a large grant from the NIH to develop a next-generation heart assist device for children. And these are, children are, are a particular challenge. Why? Um, they're an underserved market, actually. So if you think about it, um, some half a million adult patients uh, my age or older undergo open-heart surgery per year. If you look at the number of children who have these types of operations, they're a fraction of the number. So for a manufacturer that's trying to develop innovative technology, um, it's a no-brainer that the market is for the adults and not the children. So while there's been decades of work towards the development of devices for adult patients, uh, and while the manufacturer certainly realized the need for devices for children, there really hasn't been that kind of effort because there's just no market for these numbers of children and it's hard to justify commercially to develop this sort of technology. Well, as, as has always been the case, the, the driving influence for, at least in the artificial heart world, has been the National Institutes of Health. So the rotary blood pumps that I mentioned, um, their use today was spawned very much so by uh, an award of grants that the NIH made in 1994 
to five organizations and University of Pittsburgh being one of them in the consortium with that company that developed that first spinning turbine to develop these next generation pumps. And in 2002, the NIH also decided um, the folks there uh, were able to, to have funds made available to develop devices for children. And the McGowan Institute uh, teaming up with uh, Children's Hospital, um, Presbyterian University Hospital, Carnegie Mellon, and several corporate partners was awarded one of these contracts. And so to give you an idea of the challenge of this device, the device we're working to design is for the smallest of the children, the children for whom none of the adult devices would ever work. So you're talking about a child that can be as, as small as three kilograms or six pounds. So if you look at your thumb and you think your device should be the size of your thumb, it's already too big. Hmm. That's the kind of challenge you have with these pediatric devices. But the wonderful news is that there are, thanks to the NIH, as has always been the case in this field, there's a lot more interest today in developing devices for children. Um, we're working with several industrial partners who will want to bring devices available for children to the marketplace. Um, and our, our pediatric heart surgeons, Dr. Victor Morrell and Dr. Peter Weirden, and our pediatric cardiologists, Dr. Uh, Steve Weber and Bradley Keller, are totally in sync with making this happen. Mm -hmm. And they are really driving the process here. And so we will likely be doing our first clinical testing of these types of devices for the next year or two. Uh, and, and hopefully, finally, after 30 years for me from starting with a device for the first child in 1976 to now 2006 or whenever it ultimately happens, we will now be able to provide devices, suitable devices, for the pediatric world. That's great. Will these devices be used um, <coughs> only as a bridge to transplant, or are there some cases where they might help a child's heart recover from an illness? Well, the, there's hope that, you know, that, that's an unanswered question because there's never been devices that you could actually see whether or not the child's heart can recover. And then, of course, there are a number of anatomic abnormalities where you really can't recover. Mm -hmm. But my experience has always been if you provide the clinicians with technology, um, they will find applications and uses for that technology that you could never imagine. So I think if we have successful pumps, that the clinicians will find ways to apply it uh, that will certainly be beneficial to the patients. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's more complicated than miniaturizing adult heart assist devices, or if it were that simple, it probably would have been achieved. Well, already. it's very hard to just miniaturize, and I think people who tried to do that in the past struggled with it because you say, okay, it's two inches long, so we'll make it three-quarters of an inch long, but there, there, are, there are rules of physics that you have to follow, so just reducing the diameter does not ensure that you're going to fulfill all those physical, uh, it's called similitudes. Um, that would be required to maintain good flows and biocompatibility and all these sorts of things. So it's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely a real challenge, but um, we have a lot of support here from the Medical Center and the McGowan Institute, and, and I, think, I think it's a, a possibility that there will be some devices for the pediatric population. Are there adults 
walking around today who are being permanently, I mean, like, you know, at home, at work, et cetera, permanently sustained on artificial heart devices? And there, are the, there are adults who have been on devices for up to five years. Wow. Um, there are some patients who don't want the heart transplant, huh. that they have their device and they want to keep it. They don't want it to be removed. They don't want to receive a heart transplant. There's a very long waiting list for donor organs. Mm -hmm. And so if you implant a particular patient to a particular size, a particular blood type, you can anticipate that that person could have his pump or her pump for months or years. And so in many instances, um, they will have these devices for a long period of time. None of these devices is approved for, for permanence, I mean forever. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the goal here is, and maybe it will be the rotary pumps, um, the de-sized, uh, de-cell size pumps that ultimately will allow uh, patients to have these devices on a, quote, permanent basis. And just to be clear for our listeners, with a de-cell size pump, you, you retain your heart, and it, it probably is still beating, even if feebly, because of some, you know, and heart failure. And that's, that's an important point. The total artificial heart, you remove the native organ, and all you have is your pumping artificial heart. With these ventricular assist devices being the first generation of the current generation, you attach the device to the native heart. So the native heart is part of the overall pumping circuit, if you will. Um, and unfortunately, the native heart is unable to fulfill its mission, and it requires a pump to help it, but the native heart remains in the body. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, beyond the challenges of producing a new generation of a pediatric um, heart assist device. What is next for this field? Well, I think next for this field is to um, have biologic solutions. I mean, ultimately, um, metals and plastics, they're still, they're still um, second in terms of um, if you could have a biologic replacement. If you could use natural tissues and natural cells to replace a diseased organ, then clearly, in a limit, that would be the right approach, the best approach, because obviously our organs and vessels, et cetera, are not made of plastic and metals, uh, to my best knowledge anyhow. They're made of cells and tissues. And so I think some of the work that Dr. Wagner is doing, for example, where he's looking to grow uh, replacement tissues starting with biomaterial scaffolds uh, to repair injured uh, uh, parts of the heart, say following a heart attack, um, will be the future. And I think this is a terrific type of a project and it may well be the future uh, in many ways for therapies for heart failure. Okay. You mentioned that there are patients you know, who prefer to keep their artificial heart device. Are they uh, dragging around a large van full of support equipment with them, or are they <laughs> able to ambulate on their own power? <laughs> so it's interesting. Again, the University of Pittsburgh was the first center that was approved by the Food and Drug Administration to discharge a patient with an, an actual device implanted. Um, and the first patient who happened to be discharged was a young young gentleman, uh, Brian Williams, who I think was 13 or 14 years old and had an implanted pump. And, uh, and we actually uh, were allowed to discharge uh, Brian to Family House 
right down the street here, a mile away or less. And he was able to live um, in the family house setting with his mom and dad. And of course, there were engineers there all the time to make sure the equipment would function properly, etc. In those days, the equipment was literally the size of your washing machine. Wow. And, but the engineers were young, you know. And, and not that I wasn't young, but I was younger. <laughs> uh, and, this, and the engineers who were taking care of uh, all of this were more than capable of moving things around. But once, once folks determined that you can use these devices for bridge to transplant, then mortality wasn't the only consideration mm -hmm. anymore. Quality of life became a very, very important consideration. In fact, here at the University of Pittsburgh, um, uh, Dr. Marriott Mandadu in, in Western Psychiatric uh, has been a leader in evaluating the quality of life of these patients. And a lot of very, very important information came from this type of work that Professor Du has been doing over the years. And one of them was very clear that you don't really want to be pushing around washing machines. You want to give these patients uh, real quality of their life, if you will. So, you know, it's one thing to carry a book bag around or, or, uh, or a, one of the packs that you see the, the, the students walking around with. It's a whole other thing to be pushing a washing machine around. Mm -hmm. And so this really led to the, the miniaturization, if you will, of these components so that Instead of requiring a washing machine, you, you carry around batteries that, are, uh, that you can recharge just like you do with your cell phone. It's not quite that small yet, but the technology is going that way. And so the patients are much more comfortable and the caregivers are much more comfortable. And these patients can ride in cars and they can go to movies and they can do all the things that you would like your loved ones to be able to do. And, and that is something that's very typical of engineering, making things smaller and more, more efficient. And, and that continues now. Um, so e even for the pediatric world, we have to worry if we're successful. Um, how do you develop your supporting equipment, given that you have a baby who hopefully gets well and starts crawling around or jumping around? Um, you don't want any of this to get tangled up in a crib and all these sorts of things. So you're really thinking about human factors. Mm -hmm and quality of life issues uh, because when you have a patient like this it's just not the patient you have an entire caregiver a family loved ones and all of these folks have to be considered and how often does somebody who's uh, out going to the movies and whatnot with their device need to check in with those engineers I assume they're not being followed around by engineers all I the time tell you anymore. originally they were followed around a lot now they're kind of on their own yeah you know, now, I mean, part of this, at least here with uh, the artificial heart program that Steve Winowich and, and Rick Schaub are, are in charge of, there's a real education as part of um, the patients and family being in the hospital. So they're, they're taught to understand the technology, even if they're not engineers or physicians. They're taught to understand what to do. They're taught how to change the batteries. They're taught how to respond to alarms. So they feel comfortable because the last thing you want is a patient who lives 300 miles from here or 200 miles or wherever is out on a day excursion and something beeps and they don't know what to do or they become totally frightened. And So part of this is really an educational process so that the family and the patient become as comfortable as they can be with this technology and know what to do mm -hmm. and know what the key signs are to look for so that 
the extent humanly possible, they can have a good quality of life. I think other than prosthetics, there may not be a field in which engineers and clinicians are so closely allied. Um, do you, well, with your vast experience, you're probably over this, but are young people coming in the field, do they have to learn sort of a new language to speak to each other? So we've been very fortunate um, in that the School of Medicine and the Medical Center has always been uh, welcoming to engineers. And so over the years, any number of our faculty have held academic appointments in clinical departments and, and received tenure in the School of Medicine. This is very unusual, and, but it gave us the opportunity to involve engineering faculty and with that their students as participants in this really remarkable story of ventricular assistance and artificial hearts. And what I find to be so gratifying in one sense is that the students who participate in the care of these patients, who monitor the equipment, to, who make sure things are going okay um, uh, so that there's comfort uh, in the hospital and in places like Family House years ago, these same students identify what some of the problems are with this technology. And for their thesis, they actually study this and their thesis actually presents improved understanding of what's going on and how maybe you can correct it. Mm -hmm. We have any number of examples of this. The other point is that the, the, the engineers become part of the family of these patients. The, the, it's remarkable when we go to, um, last week we attended the um, celebration of the 10-year anniversary of a transplant of one of uh, the patients here. And it was a, a young woman when she had a, 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 or a ventricular cyst device. And yet, 10 years later, it's just a wonderful story. This, this young lady looks tremendous, and one of the few actually had her own child post-transplant. And when, you go, when we attended the celebration last week, all the engineers were there. Yeah. They're part of the family. They were relied upon by the patient and the family to be there to help, to support. And, and, and the experience, you just can't put a, a cost to, to something like to have our students actually see what it means to be a patient or a family with a heart failure requiring a device like this and the impact of the device and the, and the pluses and minuses of the therapy and how they can impact and what they can do. The, the patients love these, these, these uh, folks and really become part of the family. And it's, it's truly remarkable. We're very fortunate to have this opportunity. I think that must be an unusual experience for someone with a PhD in engineering to be part of the patient care experience. And is that an unusual experience even in bioengineering programs in this country? I th I th it's, it's highly unusual. Although I have to tell you from my perspective, um, it's great to have the PhDs supervising the students and whatnot. But I always personally felt that if you required a PhD in engineering for a therapy to be implemented in the hospital, it would never be implemented. Mm -hmm. So the PhD maybe helps in the initial starting of things, but then the therapy has to become routine clinical business. Mm -hmm. And that means it's, it's handled by the professionals who work routinely in a hospital. So the nursing staff, the physicians, 
yes, we have part-time engineers who are working there and helping, but the, the program I mentioned years ago, extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, 30 years ago, it was, it was just a unique experiment. Today, it happens routinely, and it's, part, it's, it's just routine what to be expected of critical care in a major medical center like Children's Hospital here at Pitt. And so the key is that whatever technologies we develop as engineers and professors and whatnot, ultimately it has to be turned over to the hospital setting. It has to belong to the patients and the caregivers, the physicians. And if those folks require PhDs to implement it, it's never going to happen. It's, so, so it has to be usable and implementable? It has to be part of the routine of the hospital or else it's just not going to make it. And, mm -hmm. and we think that what we provide, in addition to the science to try to make things better, is that our students actually are part of these families. They're, they're, they, they really are part of, uh, of the care that these patients receive. And, you know, they're all young people, of course, and energetic, and, and, and they're very, very smart and competent, and it makes a difference. Well, they're also getting a real taste of what that end user's needs are. It's as good as Rather it can than get. being isolated in a laboratory or a, you know, As I like to say, I know my class lectures are as good as they can be, but there's nothing like being where the action really is, being in the operating room with the surgeon, seeing the challenges of implanting a device like this, seeing how the patients and the families may struggle with this, that, or the other aspect of it, and then understanding how you can correct it. Mm -hmm. And as a result, our students who do this are in high or in high demand for employment. I, I, I laugh about the fact that we must have the better part of 10 of our students who are employed now by the Food and Drug Administration. And one of our students who worked at the Artificial Heart Program for several years, several years while he was pursuing his master's degree, that particular student was the FDA Engineer of the Year a couple years ago. Okay. And, and we are actually called, can you please send us some more students because they have that clinical experience. They are at that interface, so they understand the challenges of the technology and how best to help the patients. Great. Dr. Borovitz, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Leah. A great discussion with Dr. Borovitz. For more information about Dr. Borovitz, see the links on our website at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And don't forget to join us for our next podcast on the latest from the field of regenerative medicine in early October. If you have ideas for future podcasts or just like to give us some feedback, please send us an email at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We can't reply to individual emails, but we do welcome your suggestions. And let me remind you that we are not physicians and cannot provide diagnoses or medical advice. Do please stay subscribed to the RSS feed of this podcast, which is sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine and is located at www.regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And do come back and join us again in just a few weeks. 